If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about why CLV, Customer Lifetime Value, drives tangible results for organizations. And to help me discuss this topic is Neil Hoyne. Neil is the Chief Analytics Evangelist at Google and also the Head of Customer Analytics. He's someone I met years ago when initially uh, exploring this topic. Neil, welcome to the show. Hi, Elsie. Pleasure to be here. Now, tell us a little bit more about your background and how you were originally drawn to this topic. And I know you love it as much as I do because we've been circling around it mutually for so long. We have. So this topic was actually really, I'd say serendipitous. So when I was at Google, came out now about seven years ago, my entire focus, the mandate of my work in my larger team was just to understand marketing performance, to understand if, if all the ads people were clicking on and interacting did that change any customer behavior? If it did, how did it change? And then how would that impact the relationship those customers had with a particular business agency, nonprofit, going forward? And a lot of the tools that we started using at that time were really internal facing. What could we measure? What could we test? But it always seemed that something was just missing from that picture because a lot of what we measured was to say, if somebody clicked on the ad, they bought the product, and let's compare them to the propensity of somebody who didn't see or click on that ad to also buy the same product. And you start thinking that's great from a transaction basis, but what happens about that longer-term relationship? Where does loyalty and retention come in? They were largely absent. So I ended up, back about 2012, ended up giving the presentation to a large group of business executives, about four or 500 people out of Mountain View. And I noticed in the agenda, right before my presentation, they actually had a Wharton professor who I never met, never came in contact with, this gentleman, Pete Fader. No uh, who way. Was presenting on, on what sounded exactly, on what sounded like a similar subject. <laughs> and I was thinking at the time, and I said, well, I'm pretty comfortable with the techniques and the methodologies at one use. But when you're following an academic who's dedicated 20, 30 years of his life to mm-hmm. studying and learning everything about the same field, how closely do our viewpoints align? So if I'm thinking about this, well, how do we factor in loyalty and retention and and relationships into understanding marketing performance? How does that match with a Wharton professor who studied this his entire career, who's arguably talking about some of the same stuff, some of the same content? Mm -hmm. And so I ended up on a call for the conference just to talk about agendas. And I thought it would be contentious that we'd have a lot of different points of views and we'd have to change our content. It ended up being perfectly aligned. What we saw advertisers and marketers going towards, what they were trying to understand, they were trying to get past this transaction. And what Pete was doing on his side was he was already working on a solution. Uh, He knew how some of these models and these questions could be answered. But I think where his major challenge was is 
how do you take these ideas and these findings and then evangelize them back to the advertisers who were looking for the same opportunities? Mm-hmm. And so that's what really kicked it off is that we found out a lot of this work has already been done. The large challenge about understanding lifetime value is not so much the calculations and the modeling. Those things are largely complete and they, they work wonderfully well. But it's also saying, how do you get them inside an organization so that it makes sense? Mm-hmm. So that organizations can move from measuring transactions and measuring ad clicks to a more long-term sustainable value. Mm-hmm. So the internal adoption. Is that sort of what your team does now? How does that experience relate into what you're specifically doing today at Google? You know, it's turned out to be a huge part of what our team does, which is not to say we're trying to solve lifetime value for all of our advertisers. But we're trying to help them embrace those techniques and strategies that will really help them understand who their customers are, the relationships they have with them, and then how to measure the impact of their advertising along the same spectrum. So really moving away just from those transaction-oriented relationships to something that's really about the customers and understanding who their best customers are. Lifetime value plays a huge component as this organizational buy-in and data structure, but we also look at, at some other components too to say when we look at things like machine learning, Can we start scoring leads better before somebody becomes a customer? Can we use things like ML to understand which creatives are going to reach customers at a better time in a better way? How should it impact your website? So the best way that we like to describe it is that we like to help our advertisers as a team understand the value of their customers and then understand how to provide better experiences to them. Mm -hmm. I like that term about providing better experiences to them. And let's use that as a way to roll into our first point, which is about why should I care about this subject? We've covered a lot about the basics of CLV with Pete on this show and with Dan McCarthy on this show. Tell me a little bit more if my role as a marketer is to provide good experiences or my role as an advertiser is you think I should care about CLV. Why is this so important? Why now? It's an interesting question. To be honest, Allison, I haven't met an advertiser, haven't met a marketer that would argue against the importance of lifetime value. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge, though, is the transitioning from what they've done historically. And we kind of role play with them every now and then. We'll say, you know, we'll give them CLV. They'll come back to us and say, Google, what you're telling me is that you've created a metric that's supposed to look into the future about how my customers are going to behave. And as a result of that metric, uh, which you built, you want us to give you more money and then to trust that these customers are going to continue to behave this way, Uh, as opposed to the model today where we just invest and we we see the return on the same day, the same week. Why would we change our behaviors? Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is just a question to say, you know, how are they approaching CLV? What's the role that lifetime value currently has in the organization? If it's just one of those metrics to say, look, it's forward looking, it's nice to know it's going to be tough to build off of that. So what we try to do to push on the importance of actually first, when it comes to lifetime value in general, we actually stop recommending specific marketing changes. And instead, if we're able to use some of these models, the things that Pete and Dan have worked on in their entire academic careers, we kind of put them on and we say, here's just what we can understand. Here is a decile segmentation of your customers by lifetime value. And on the top, they usually see customers at the top that are going to spend several thousand dollars with them over their lifetime. And then on the bottom, customers are going to spend maybe just a couple of bucks. Mm-hmm. And that's generally where we stop and we say, this is where marketers start to pay attention to. They say, wait a minute, 
it becomes real where they say their customers will actually spend and behave differently. And then we ask them, we say, well, given this understanding and assuming that you trust the models and everything that's been published and peer-reviewed on this, and you believe in the accuracy and the goodness of these models, what are you doing today that makes those customers on the top feel any different than those customers on the bottom? And that's where the cracks in the current approach start to come. We talk about customer experience. You said, well, yes, we're supposed to provide a great customer experience. But we'll say, if you're running an A-B test, where you're looking at the content on your website, the right messaging, are you looking at all the participants on that test as being equal? Mm-hmm. So are you customizing your content just to the, your entire customer population? Or do you think it's more effective to build creatives and to build content and website experiences and mobile applications that really appeal to the customers that are going to be spending the most amount of money with your firm. Okay. So but- I don't think you kick anybody out, but you need to value the opinions a little bit differently. I completely agree. I mean, that's one of the core concepts of heterogeneity. But what do you say to the firm that says, well, we are treating them differently. If they viewed XYZ page, then we serve them T content. So that's how we're running our different segmentations. What do you say to that group? I say that's a great start. Uh, and that even goes back to some basic segmentation for those customers that aren't doing lifetime value. Maybe sometimes they'll look at just RFM segmentation to understand who they should be targeting, who they should be adding onto these lists. That's a fine place to start, but we can get so much better. And we use weddings as great examples. When I was getting married, you could look at some of these vendors we purchased from and be like, wow, in the past 60 days, you know, spent a lot of money. <laughs> but if you were to look at lifetime value, be like, he's not coming back. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's like, oh, not. Not coming back to spend more money. So those targeting paths wouldn't apply. So even in that case where people do simple, they clicked here, they visited our site twice, they added something to a shopping cart. Those are better approaches when you consider doing nothing at all. But you really want to start forecasting what's happening going forward and what's your value. It just gives you a much better perspective. And all those previous techniques are all perfectly valid. But when we look at it from a larger perspective, most advertising online is a digital auction. In that case, you want better information and you want to make better decisions than your competitors. And this type of segmentation is adding something to a shopping cart and then a remarketing list is the status quo today. CLV offers you a path by which you can differentiate your business and the decisions that they're making, the customers you go after, without a lot of overhead. It's just being able to have the flexibility to say that the return that you're looking for may not come today but you will see it long-term in the sustainability of your business. That's tough for most businesses because it requires them to pause, pivot, and take a leap of faith. And there's always the quest for the next dollar, but now you're asking them to believe that not all dollars are equal. But more than that, I want to circle back to one thing that you said, which you almost never hear in the quantitative space, is you said a few minutes ago, how do you make your customers feel differently? And I, I think that really touches on the forward-looking behavior. The We can't usually measure or we can't measure very accurately unless I could somehow attach through the keyboard and the mouse and tell exactly how you were feeling at a time. <laughs> we don't always know that, but I think that's an important, or it seems like you're stressing that that might be an important piece of what customers want. It's a critical piece. And that's critical because of exactly what you just said, that it, it's hard for customers to be measured in that perspective. So it's easy for businesses to forget that it matters. And it's funny because in a strange way, a lot of the people that we work with, a lot of companies, these are brilliant people. It's difficult for them to invest in areas and in programs 
where they can't see an immediate ROI. Mm-hmm. And I know, Allison, you and I joke a lot about airline business models. And, and one that we always come back to is on mobile applications, when we pull audiences and we do these, generally we'll get nearly everyone has used their mobile application uh, for an airline as a boarding pass. And you think about what it offers you, how, how easy it is to get to the airport, especially if you're flying out of a place like New York where you always seem to show up a half hour before your flight is leaving and you need to get your security. It, it is a godsend to have that. And we often talk to a lot of these agencies and airlines behind the app, and they say, you know, it's great that people have our mobile app, but they're not buying tickets. And I said, but you're offering other services and things that are, are supplementing that relationship and that are providing value. Yeah, but from an ROI perspective, we need them to buy tickets. But that's not how they want to engage with your brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can see that. We can see what tools and activities. And it's, it's interesting to watch them struggle to say, well, how do we invest more in an experience because we can't directly tie it to increases in ticket revenue? And then you start doing segmentations. Well, have you ever looked at the lifetime value differences between customers that have your mobile application and those that don't? And if you see that difference, and you should, it should lead to, to more positive experiences with your customers. Once you have that, maybe you want to take a segment of those customers and test them and say, these are customers that haven't downloaded the app. Let's see if we get it in front of them, if that changes the relationship they have with our airline or any other business for that matter. I but you're love right, that, that, that focus is just so much at, yeah, just so much on near-term ROI, and I understand why they have to do it. The, the relationship between CFOs and CMOs is historically very tense, right? Mm-hmm. You have a CFO who can measure product output in factories and real estate and understand what they're getting back and what the return is on those investments. And you have a marketer who comes in and says, well, is there how many transactions we've had? And sometimes we've seen them integrate social media metrics. I saw a CMO one time that put on a presentation for the board that said, look at the improvement of the number of likes and followers we have on social media. Oh, gosh. You see, you see CFOs say, I'm not sure I understand how to value these numbers, mm-hmm. but I know how to value immediate money. So if you said somebody clicked on your ad and they bought a ticket, I might be willing to give you that. But I think we're finally getting to the point now where CFOs are starting to look to say, lifetime value makes a lot more sense, not only because it captures some of that immediate transaction value, it also gives us a sense as to the incrementality to say, people are going to click and continue to buy, even if maybe we don't advertise to them. And then also to say, for the money that we're investing in service, the money that we're investing in it's supplementary functions for the relationship, we start to have a sense of what that's doing for our overall customer base. Yeah, I love that. And I want to shift over to ROI impact in just a second. But before we do, I want to call out something that is a definition of how you look at the personalized relationship. And in your example about the mobile app ticket buyers, not only was the CLV an incredibly clarifying metric for how to understand the business, but it was also the definition of what's personalization. We oftentimes think personalization is just, oh, I've modified an email to have a particular record of what you might have looked at before, and are you interested in buying that again? But in your definition of personalization, it's more comprehensive. I'm not even sure I would use the word personalization. I would almost just think about it as relationship building. It's so much more. I would agree with that. I wouldn't go so far maybe to say that the one thing is personalization versus not. I think if you're taking customer level data and you're trying to use that and apply it in some way that's more meaningful to the customer, I could see personalization being one of those tools. Mm-hmm. I think the, the argument that I would make is that, yeah, and this is kind of what you would to, is that 
I would say it should be more comprehensive than simply customizing the name and the subject line of that email. Mm-hmm. I think the easiest way for, for audiences that are new to this to understand it is just to almost take it from a, a digital perspective and bring it into a real-world perspective, which is to say, if you went to the same store over and over again, you felt you were one of their best customers, you always bought a particular product from them, you spent a lot of money with them over the years, and the only thing they seemed to remember about you was your name. And that's the only thing that they changed about your experience. So you walk into that store and you interacted with the same clerk dozens of times. Mm-hmm. And that's, oh, oh hi, hi, Neil. Nice to have you back. That might be personalized, but that's not going to really shape the relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it's better than to say a hi and they introduce themselves over to you for uh, the empty time. But to say, well, how do you drive that relationship a little bit farther forward? So they recognize that you're a valuable customer. Maybe they did a lifetime value calculation. Maybe not. Let's assume they did, and they know you're a valuable person. And they say, okay, well, what's going to be meaningful? First, maybe they're going to find other products that you're interested in. So we know you bought these products. Let's make other recommendations that are meaningful to you. Maybe they're going to notice to say, well, wait a minute. You purchased a lot from us in the past, but we haven't seen you for the past couple weeks. Maybe they might be worried that there's competitive actions that are coming after you, and that they should try to improve those. Maybe, and this is even more of a forward-looking perspective, Maybe they're going to offer you something of value that does not result in an immediate transaction on their side. And that, I think, is probably one of the biggest keys is to say, is there anything they can deliver to you that will bring you into a closer relationship with a firm, perhaps teaching you how to use products, helping you find a product that may be a special order, something that's not profitable to them, but it makes you feel good. It's this, Pete talks about it a lot, this, this idea of surprise and delight. Is that what's necessary that you should look at besides just saying, oh, use your name? Say, based on all your activity with us, all the signals that you sent, this is something that we think will strengthen and make the relationship more meaningful, as opposed to just a templated approach that we take with all of our other customers. I love it. And those things, I think, those those stand out to customers because they're so rarely done. Mm -hmm. Think about it. When was the last time you received an email to say, this is something where we're just trying to add value to your life, Mm -hmm. not necessarily we're pushing the product with a limited time offer. Those are rare to get. And if you get the markers right, if you understand what's adding value to them, then those experiences are meaningful and you almost get the sense that that business gets you. Mm-hmm. More than other companies you interact with today, I like these people. I want to continue to buy. Maybe even they have a slightly higher price. And then we start getting into that area of loyalty. You know, a great example of that is I have a story I've shared previously about Marriott and the way they got me as a customer. And they're pretty effective, I think, in the way that they understand their customer base. And oftentimes with hotels and airlines, they'll send you this email ahead of time that says, you're going to Philadelphia. Here are things that are happening in Philadelphia or like here's a surrounding of different activities and other things that you want to know. But if they knew I was a business traveler, they would know that I have no time to go visit the museum and run up the rocky (laughs) steps. You know, I'm not interested in that. But what's helpful to me is where are the good business dinner locations near me or where are good transportation options or other things that I might need as a business traveler. And that's a perfect opportunity to personalize or perhaps surprise and delight based on a category or purpose of why somebody's traveling to a particular location. And half the time, when you make a reservation, they ask if you're business or if you're traveling for pleasure. So it seems like a good thing that they could start with that meets what you just described. Exactly that. And one of the rules that we always stress with companies as well is you're collecting data on customers. And not only should they know what data you're collecting, but you have to give them something back. 
If you're exactly. going to ask me questions about my flight, about my trip, I don't mind. I think out of the airlines, I know Southwest always does this when they'll ask you, traveling for business or personal reasons. I never know what happens to that information, so I'm not necessarily inclined to fill it out. But you know but what you gave. A value. Right. I know what I gave. I'm like, I answered that question, and I assume it's either some marketing segmentation or some pricing models. Like, oh, business travelers perhaps are less price sensitive than, than, than personal travelers. Mm-hmm. But it's surprising when you talk to companies, airlines in particular, uh, how many signals they they could be missing. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you one right now out of out of personal experience. Uh, I am in the process of changing airlines just because, you know, some routes work better. But the airline I flew with last year, I flew probably close to 125,000 miles with them. Nice. Uh, pretty regular flying two or three uh, flights with them every month, a round trip. Uh, I haven't booked anything with them. I, I, think I, don't, I think I'm out of bookings for the next six or seven months. Hmm. Nothing booked, nothing on calendar. They haven't seen me in a month and a half. You're off cadence. I haven't heard from them. I haven't had a single email. They haven't said, hey, we, we haven't seen you in a while. What? You're, you're veering off course. We may have predicted that you were going to be one of our better customers. What happened? Um, but that's, that's when they should be doing some information gathering. They spend so much time and so much money acquiring customers. And when you think about those costs and what they say historically, I think, you know, I've seen estimates from five to to 20 times more to acquire a customer versus retaining an existing customer. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that a lot of companies, when they're looking at these customer relationships, they like to keep their existing customers, but they always have the idea that they can go out and, and fish for new ones. It's like, well, we've always been able to acquire new customers. There's always going to be new people entering into the market. Uh, so I think as part of this, there needs to be a stronger emphasis also on the retention portion to say, are there signals within your business? And assuming if you're a subscription-based business, if you're a, if you're a Netflix or a Hulu where somebody says, I'm leaving you as a customer, that's a discrete signal. But I challenge a lot of businesses that are starting to think about lifetime value, these customer-centric ways of thinking. So what signals do you have uh, that are reliable that says either this customer is leaving uh, or more importantly, do you have any signals that say this customer's relationship is not as strong today as it was Beginning. with your firm a year ago? Yeah, yeah. And how does that prompt action? So that's an excellent point. I'm going to bring up two points behind that. So we've shifted over into the ROI impact, which which I love. This is exactly the heart of why you should care about LTV and why it's so important. When you talk about people wanting to acquire just another customer, there's a premise there that all customers are equal and I can just get another fast buck. But are we actually saying that there is a limited supply of good customers? And then second, behind that, you've mentioned retention, and there's a secondary concept that if you're going to churn, you're going to churn, and there may be nothing I can do to stop you. So first, are there a limited supply of good customers? And if there are a limited supply of good customers and I start to lose them, is there anything I can do to actually keep them? So generally, my experience has been that, yes, there are, in fact, limited numbers of customers. But I I will qualify that a little bit more by saying there are a limited number of customers for your business. That's conditional upon the products and services you offer. In the airline's case, the routes that they fly. But you didn't Uh, say good customers. You said customers for your business. I would start there and say, well, there's there's always going to be a, a limited pool of customers. So keeping with the airline example for a moment, if you're only flying a route from New York to Chicago, there's customers in each market. You're not going to be able to bring in customers from San Francisco with your current product offering. It just won't work. 
And within those groups, there are just going to be behaviors of customers where some will spend more and some will spend less. And when you look at that segment of how many customers are going to spend X amount of dollars over their lifetime with you, that's a finite amount. New customers will, of course, come into the market. New customers will leave, but I don't think it's going to change the dynamics of your business that much by customers literally dying off and new customers entering, say, the business market. I don't think that's a place you want to play. Uh, But I believe, yes, there are a finite number of customers. And I think the longer that your business is around, I think if you're not expanding and providing new value and new products and new services, I think you can reach just a limit where you've extracted as much value from those customers as you can, which almost leads into the second part of your question, which is to say, no matter who the relationship is with, the strength or how much those people are spending, one of the conditions of lifetime value is that there is a particular value amount associated with those customers. It's not open-ended. Uh, it's not saying these customers will perpetually spend more and more and more with you, but it's just you have a sense to say, for this particular group of customers, this is a dollar amount that we're fairly confident as to how much value these customers have. And over time, as that relationship unfolds, that value will be captured by your firm. As Pete calls it, that's money in the bank. Mm-hmm. After that money is exhausted, after you've captured all that, there's not a lot left in that relationship for you to get, which is, you know, some companies say, say, well, these people have always been a great customer of ours. We're going to continue to, to get those customers. And if they leave, we're going to try to win them back. You have to be careful because if you've extracted all the value from the relationship, that's all there is. And you're not going to be able to capture it from those customers going forward. They're going to be lost. You will then have to go back and find new customers to replace them, Mm -hmm. which could be a difficult premise if you're not used to doing that. You know, I'll give a great example there because when I was a younger girl, I used to get the magazine 17. And there's an interesting point when the magazine 17 (laughs) is relevant to a young girl. But it's not when you're 17. It's when you want to be a 17-year-old. And so at the point that you start to get closer and closer to the age of 17, you don't want that magazine anymore. But yet they really didn't have anything to push you into after you've kind of exhausted the value that you got from the 17 magazine, but it fits your example perfectly. There was no more value I was going to get out of that magazine. I didn't care. <laughs> and I'm not sure I can comment about that particular periodical, but <laughs> now think about it. Wouldn't it be sad if every year from that point afterwards, 17 is sending you a packet being like, please, we wish you'd become a subscriber again. Oh. <laughs> you know, you, you are our best subscriber. You subscribe for four or five years. We, we'd love to have you back. What can we do? bring you back and you're like, well, this, this, just, this product doesn't fit my life at this point. And then you start to see and unpack the intricacies of it. But they need to understand, first of all, that your value, your lifetime value to them has probably been captured. There's not a lot of residual value left in that relationship. And then they have to make a decision to say, for, as a company, you're lost as a customer. So the choice will either be you can go out and find more people, acquire new customers, which is that expensive proposition we talked about. Or are there products and services that would fit the next phase of your life that they should offer? Now, these are reasonable questions, and you can apply them, extrapolate them out to almost an infinite number of business models. And then let's go back to almost where we started. Imagine if you're just sitting there at the 17 office, and you're thinking, well, how do we get one more subscription? Without consideration as to where our subscribers are in their life, how our products fit, what they might need next. And just going out and saying, the only numbers we're looking at are how many subscribers we have. You think about how many lessons 
are lost in it almost, especially given that, because there was a wonderful example that you offered with the magazine. You gave a very real scenario as to what the life cycle in that relationship could be with the magazine that could be completely overlooked just because they're looking at transactional metrics. How many subscribers do we have today? Right. And those would lead to different decisions and different marketing campaigns, different forms of segmentation. Well, it's almost like bad business practices versus good business practices. You know, good business practices are customer relationship building. And part of that is also acknowledging when the value of the customer is exhausted and there really is no justification for a relationship with your business. It's time to let go. And part of that is also, I imagine, on the acquisition side, too. Exactly. But we could go deeper into the acquisition side. That's but I think fundamentally, we've touched on those key areas, which is to say, you need to look at those three areas, which is the acquisition, the development of those relationships, and then the retention of the customers, or not. When do you let them go when that relationship is just exhausted? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. So with regard to the acquisition side, what do you typically see, I mean, especially from Google's perspective? You know, you mentioned the marketing purview that you have. Do you see that there are better practices that some businesses have for acquiring customers and where do they commonly miss? I mean, other than they're going after the transactional, you know, quick dollar, what's a better way to do it? <laughs> I'll actually start that off with a few worst practices that we've seen. Great. Um, because we, we can learn, we can learn a lot. So some of the worst practices we've seen, one is where we've seen people say, well, the lifetime value of these customers is expected to be X. Therefore, we can spend up to X acquiring those customers. Got it. Not the best thing to do. Generally, it turns out to be incredibly inefficient, both from a targeting side and an acquisition side, and also very little room for error. Um, But generally, they'll they'll go out and say, we're having a lot of success because we're just throwing a lot of money at our top customers. So generally, what you want to do is you want to put increased focus. And if that requires an additional incremental investment, then by all means. Uh, as long as you can prove that you're successful in your acquisition efforts. But uh, it, would be, it would be foolish just to set that as an upper bound for marketing spend for a particular group of customers, just because of some of the risk involved in the uncertainty of targeting. Well, and you're saying that because that- lifetime value in that case is a generic average, not a precision calculated future lifetime value. Is that right? With an, if you look at lifetime value with a single individual, there's going to be a lot of volatility that comes with it. When you look at them in terms of a set, these are our highest lifetime value customers. They tend to be pretty stable. But the questions are that we try to explore, for instance, again, just travel works so cleanly here, is that we work with some companies on the hotel and airline side that say, look, we have identified our best customers, our, our frequent travelers, our, our frequent flyers. We want to get more people that spend that amount of money. And we're going to spend whatever it takes. That's possible to do. First of all, you have to assume you can find these people in the market. But then could you imagine if you have a particular loyalty status with an airline? Imagine how much money a competing airline might have to spend to win you over. Right. Assuming that the products even line up. Mm-hmm. So there's some, you may be able to identify customers that have similar attributes to high-value customers. But the likelihood that there's going to be an exact match uh, and then they're going to then, and then you acquire them, and then they spend the same way. There's always going to be some error in that question to say, are you truly acquiring those those right customers? Now, over time, if you work on this, you're going to get better signals, and you're going to look at the performance. Say, look, uh, we launched this promotion where we said, uh, for instance, if you were a, a high-status customer with, with competitor A, we're going to match that status. And you may think, well, the only people we're bringing over are their valuable customers. 
well, maybe they're going to come over to your business and they're only going to transact with you one or two times during the year. Well, so now you acquired someone you thought was going to be high value and they're just behaving differently because of your products and services and the reasons why they were acquired to begin with, especially if you start offering discounts and coupons. So you want to give yourself a little bit of room to say, we want to focus on these customers. We want to understand these customers. But then we also want to see how they behave and transact with our business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and if you just bid to the maximum, that means you're spending as much money as you can to win them over, rolling out the red carpet. And they're going to take advantage of that because that's a compelling offer. But you don't necessarily know how they're going to behave with your firm. So you want to look at this as being a very dynamic process. And simply because you identify the most valuable customers, sometimes there's a case to say they're not the customers you need to go after. Uh, sometimes you're just looking at customers that are slightly better than the people you've been acquiring in the past. Or maybe you're going to reduce the cost of, of targeting people who are going to be in the lower buckets of the customers and the value they could provide. Yep. So those types of incremental changes tend to be a lot more stable for a business, and we learn a lot from them. The third mistake that we see customers make, and this tends to be with earlier stage startup type companies, is that they get VCs, it seems, and private equity funds fixated on this idea of acquisition. And where they say, well, you know what, we're going to focus on growing our customer base to a million customers. Mm. And then one of two things happens. Either they say later on, we're going to figure out how to monetize them. Or two, they offer an average lifetime value. And I'll start with the latter one because this has been prevalent in the past 10 years and a lot of the pitches that I've seen. They come in and say, we are acquiring customers for $5 a customer. And based on this lifetime value calculation, these customers will spend 10 times as much as $50. So for every $5 we put into customer acquisition, we're getting 45 back. But a startup has no real data to look at I mean, by definition, right? How are they making that projection? You know, well, that's actually kind of a funny thing. That I've, I've talked to a lot of these things. They're going deeper to say, how did you calculate lifetime value? They're just saying, oh, well, you looked at lifetime value. We're going to assume you put some rigor or the standard one-size-fits-all formula into that you learn in MBA programs, and we're going to apply it, and we get an average lifetime value. We ignore the differences between individual customers. And now you could think about it. If you go out a couple quarters with those firms, they acquire a whole bunch of customers. They hit their target for acquisition, but then they actually run a sensible lifetime value calculation, and they realize that a lot of the people they acquired for, say, $5 are actually worth much, much less. Yes, than that. And they have a customer base they can't monetize that isn't going to provide lasting value for them. And then you end up back with a push and pull to VCs to say, well, we thought these customers are going to spend 50, and we actually found out a majority of them are going to spend two. And you think about that, what that has the implications of value for the business. So the findings that we take are that, first of all, all companies, regardless of size, should at least know how to calculate lifetime value properly. If they lack the data to do it, and we're not talking about huge data requirements, usually six months and a year of transaction data can be sufficient. We've seen for some mobile gaming companies, two or three weeks might be enough to get started. Even if they don't have enough data, they know what they should be collecting, and they can start to see the accuracy and the fit of their models early on. And then they at least have a goal and a target towards what they're building towards. Mm-hmm. And they're going to embrace a lot of these practices. And back as to why I focused on the bad practices, they're not going to go into uh, their investors are into a board meeting saying, we have a rough approximation of lifetime value and we're going to spend up until that amount to acquire customers. They're going to be very careful about the value of the customers. They might even do RFM segmentation as a way to get started. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to fall into the, the trap of saying, we have an average value that we can then extrapolate out to anybody that we acquire, anybody that signs up for our product. Now, they just take it a little bit easier than that. 
Got it. Got it. So let's say that maybe I'm not a startup. Let's say that I'm a general, you know, maybe a 30 million to $700 million company. I'm in the thick of it in terms of U.S. businesses. Let's say that I want to get started and I'm really happy to roll this out. Where should I focus? How should I make it tangible to my business? We always recommend, I mean, there's going to be a few components of it. First is you're going to have to understand how these models and forecasts are built. If you can't calculate lifetime value accurately, there's a few external companies that also do a wonderful job at this that they can partner with, but you're going to need to be able to calculate that number reliably for your own business, which requires you to have that data in place, but that at least gives you a true north as to how your customers are behaving. Similar to that example I gave you before, it's easier just to say, this is what our current customer base looks like and to provoke those discussions internally than it is to say we're now going to be customer-centric and focus on lifetime value. Mm -hmm. So I always say understand the models, understand the data input from it, and then understand what your current customer base looks like. And these models aren't exactly – I mean, they're packaged models, but they're not simplistic models. I just want to emphasize that. And, I mean, as we've seen in the conversations, the podcast conversations earlier with Dan McCarthy and Pete Fader, there are these buy-to-die models, and they have subscription basis and non-subscription basis, and then there are other intricacies to it. So getting the math right isn't rocket science, but it is important. It is important. It's important, and it's also important to respect the complexity of it, especially in the difference between these traditional MBA models where people guess at a retention rate, a discount rate, and just oh, throw yeah. them into the formula. The you, land of aggregates. <laughs> exactly. The math is hard, but it's also something that's so powerful to your business, you want to make sure you get it right. Yeah, yeah. And then once you have it right, then the important part is not to rush to immediately build a marketing or operational plan around it, but to gather stakeholders in different parts of your business, representing marketing, product, finance, and to say, if this is our business to date, and we trust these models and the accuracy of what these projections represent, what does this mean to the future of our business? And then almost all, then go back into audit what your current marketing activities or your current product activities are built around. So on the marketing side, we already talked, are you building the same campaign for everyone? Are you targeting everybody equally? What do you do if somebody leaves? What are those retention? I can't emphasize how important that is to gather the teams and focus them. This is almost never done. No, you need them in the same room around common language, and it's best to make sure. If you're listening to this, you're going to do this. Do not come in with solutions as to how you're going to apply this because then it favors your team, and then the product team is saying, well, we're being left behind. Just present to say, this is what we believe to be the truth about our business. And then ask the product people, ask them to say, are you building products to see what's going to ship the most units or the products that are going to meet the needs of our very best customers? Because if they stop reading 17 magazine, what do we have for them? Or do you just have another product that's supposed to be targeted at teenage girls? Or do you have something to say, what's the next step in that life cycle, in that relationship to make sure that we keep those customers around? Mm -hmm. And then to work as a team, to work as an organization, these things cannot be done in silos. Mm-hmm. So it's really those two parts. It's to understand the technical modeling because it's important to get an accurate, reliable forecast. It's also been published and peer-reviewed, uh, not a black box. And then you need to have everyone around the table saying, if we believe these models, what does this mean to our business and how do we respond? Those steps are usually enough to get people talking. I've never seen someone walk away from a discussion saying, well, I believe this number, but I'm not going to change my behavior and I'm still going to treat all of our customers like the same. Mm-hmm. Got it. Is there a third piece to it? You know, the third piece that I could push on, if 
I really wanted to would be on the application side, mm-hmm. which is, it gets a little bit technical, but to say, once you have a plan of action, and again, going back to the marketing side that I'm most familiar with, you decide and say, these are our valuable customers. These are the people that we want to go after. The harder part can be, well, how does this actually become real? What should we look at when we're running, say, a marketing campaign? What should we look at in terms of our ROI? And what are those metrics? What are those benchmarks? Do we look at it strictly as lifetime value? How long are we going to wait until we expect that campaign to pay off? How aggressive do we want to be on retention campaigns? Those are really where we're taking lifetime value and we're saying, well, if we're doing lifetime value, how are we going to start putting money behind provoking different actions from our customer base? Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're going to reduce costs for our lower value customers, how far are we going to reduce those costs and how are we going to run a test to know those investments? are in fact productive. And the reason why that's a harder area is the science and the theory behind it pretty simple, but everybody's learning about these ideas and techniques at the same time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the larger marketing applications, a lot of the ad stack providers haven't necessarily embraced lifetime value themselves. You're going to still force it into a transactional model. So you're going to have to do a little bit of the math to say, well, how does this apply to products that are still focusing on just that next subscription, the next order, as opposed to the lifetime value side? Well, and, you know, we have a whole session at the conference, at the Customer Centricity Conference, of which Google is our partner, thank you very much, where Joe Stanhope from Forrester and other folks are going to be talking about the future of MarTech, and a big part of that is the tools and the way the tools are structured. So I don't want to brush that aside, but it is a very rich topic that we will definitely be hitting on some more. Very cool. So now, Neil, if people want to reach you, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, I wish I was going to be at this fantastic conference. It looks like I'm going to be called out to London that week. But if anybody wants to reach out, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. You can definitely find a much less active Twitter account. People are always also free to send me an email at my Google account, which is just my first initial and last name, Hoyne at google.com. I'm always happy to answer questions, comments, get your thoughts. We've learned so much engaging other people who are interested in this space that it's always a pleasure to reach out and, again, touch with new enthusiasts and people that are working in their company to learn where they're finding success, where they're having difficulty in seeing how we can partner and work together. I know. I appreciate that. So let's summarize a little bit about what we covered. So first, why should you care about the tangible value of CLV, customer lifetime value? And I think the most important piece we hit on here is that customers don't just want a deeper sense of personalization or a great experience. They actually want a relationship. So behind those words, we're not talking about just simple tactical changes, though that's a great place to start. It's the relationship building that really drives the business and the value that you can get out of CLV, understanding what those customers want from you. And along that line, we talked about the ROI metrics are oftentimes very transactional. The data may be unclear in that kind of ROI structure, but CLV gives you a very clear signal. So again, when you're building those relationships and you're trying to get better experiences, having that clear line of sight to what customers want in those different segments is an excellent way to go. And and it drives right to business impact, as we've discussed on other podcasts with the show. 
Second, what kind of impact can I get out of this? Well, certainly keeping more of the good customers in the market is a theme that I'm starting to hear more and more. I think that customers come and go in terms of the timing of when they're ready and when they're not ready for your product. We talked about how much value they might have with your business and when that value might be spent. But in the meantime, there will always be a certain pool of customers that you want that are going to treat you well and you have a great relationship with and going after those customers by not overspending on acquisition and knowing the right kind of customer that you want, not just on the transactional level, but on the behavioral level is where we start to get to this dynamic process of understanding our customers over time. And third, we talked about some concrete next steps in terms of technically calculating the model correctly and organizationally. This is a point we haven't hit on as hard before, and I think it's incredibly important about aligning the entire company, bringing everyone to the table, not with solutions, but with questions of here's what we're seeing. What does this mean to our business and how should we respond? And then finally, with the application, once you get everybody aligned, moving them into, okay, how how do we tactically take this into the way we relate to our customer base and weave it into processes and tools? Did I miss anything there, Neil? Did I capture the general gist? That's fantastic summary, Allison. Good, good. Well, as always, everything we discuss is going to be at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much for the invitation as well. Good. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.